Maybe like me, every January you plan for the year ahead. But in recent years, major global events from COVID to war in Ukraine to Gaza and now the attack on US military personnel in Jordan have affected us all in planning the future. Worldwide governments, defence and national security strategists are planning too, so we thought we should give them a hand. After all, we've had scary headlines about military leaders suggesting we could be heading towards World War III. The United States is planning to station nuclear warheads in Britain for the first time in 15 years. Senior British generals talk of expanding the British Army, and we've even heard ominous discussions of the C-word, conscription. This war is about Russia fearing something much more powerful than any physical weapon on Earth, democracy. Maximizing our preparedness and our deterrence helps to minimize the chance of a conflict ever arising. Meanwhile, there remains, of course, no ceasefire in Gaza, Houthi militants in Yemen continue to strike at ships in the Red Sea. And while Iran has played mostly behind the scenes, Pakistan and Iran have been involved in military action against armed groups along their remote border region. Anyone looking to take advantage of conflict in the Middle East, don't do it. We've taken steps to defend ourselves and to defend our partners, as well as to prevent escalation. So, what are the prospects short and long-term for peace in this dangerous world? This is not a drill. Hello and welcome to This Is Not A Drill. I'm Gavin Esler and today we bring you the first panel from our entire hosting team and a new member of the This Is Not A Drill family. Joining me and Kyiv-based conflict correspondent Oz Katerji is Emma Beals, an independent consultant and senior advisor at the European Institute of Peace. Very glad to have you aboard, Emma. Glad to be here. Thanks, Gavin. Listeners may recall my conversation with Emma earlier in the series on the alarming rise in armed conflicts across the globe. Uh, Emma, we overlook just how many conflicts there are around the world. So what's been your focus? Um, Well, I've been building on that work that brought me onto the show in the first place. So puzzling over the current crisis in peace and conflict resolution and working on potential solutions, namely trying to answer the question, how do we create the political will to prevent and resolve conflicts? Because to me, that's the missing piece in all of this. Listeners will also be familiar with our regular host, Oz Katerji. Thanks for joining us again, Oz. My pleasure to be here, Gavin. Now, you've brought us the latest from Ukraine, of course, already in the series. So how would you describe things now? Because coming to the end of winter, eventually in the next few weeks, what's the mood as people look forward to what will presumably be a renewed sense of the war itself? So there's two major things that I'd probably highlight about what it's like here in Ukraine. One, the situation with aid from Europe and America still hasn't been resolved Uh, And if that aid package comes, then Ukraine is still going to be starved of ammo. So artillery, anti-air, these kinds of things that Ukraine really needs to not just uh, defend itself, but advance as well. Um, So I think the mood for 2024 really is going to be one of defense. The idea will be to rebuild Ukraine's uh, offensive strength, likely for 
uh, some kind of uh, renewed counteroffensive in the spring of 2025. But that's dependent on so many things, particularly uh, the US election results, the presidential election results, and what kind of um, future guarantees of aid Ukraine can hope for in the shifting political landscape in Europe and America as the year ticks on. We'll pick up on some of that, Oz, a a little later in the show. But first, a word on how to support our work by backing us via Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you'll keep us on the airwaves as we seek to keep you in the know in an increasingly complicated and dangerous world. Plus, you'll get episodes early and access to exclusive extras. Just search Patreon, this is not a drill, to sign up now. In recent weeks, the Military Committee Chair of NATO, Admiral Rob Bauer, and the outgoing British Army Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Patrick Sanders, hit the headlines with warnings of a possible wider European war with Russia. Even conscription has been discussed in the British media. The Americans are putting nukes back in their base in eastern England. And in our episode last week, we heard how delays on US and European funding for Ukraine that Oz referred to have seen some commentators urge Ukraine towards a peace deal you may conclude that Vladimir Putin must hope to see Donald Trump back in the White House to do what the Russian military cannot do, defeat Ukraine by cutting off support. Oz, we've heard all these stories about uh, possibility of conscription, the possibility of a wider war in Europe with Russia. What do you make of that? I mean, look, I've heard a lot of pissing and moaning about conscription in Europe uh, from British uh, people on both sides of the um, political spectrum complaining that they they don't want to die in a war with Russia. Uh, And the very simple answer is Ukrainians are dying every single day fighting a war with Russia. And many of the people complaining about conscription are also saying that we shouldn't be helping Ukraine. Uh, And if that happens, if Ukraine loses, then Russia's going to be on a aggressive footing towards NATO countries. This is a simple matter of security. If you don't want to worry about conscription, then provide Ukrainians with the support they need. The warning signs and the alarms are being raised because the situation is not good at the moment. Not good for Ukrainians and not good for Europe and European security. We're at a stage now where there are very, very aggressive international powers that have damaging our security interests at the core of their ideology. And I really think that those people that are complaining about it should really focus more on, okay, what can we do to prevent this from happening? Rather than, oh, well, I don't think that there should be any conscription. I don't think there should be a war with Russia. No one wants a war with Russia, but Russia considers itself at war with the West. That is a reality that people have to wake up to. And and no amount of... uh, you know, complaining about it is going to change that fact, I'm afraid. Emma, what do you make of this? Because it sounds, uh, frankly, uh, as if Ukraine is doing the fighting so we don't actually have to. And that is therefore a question of where does British responsibility lie and that of other countries in Western Europe? Yeah, I mean, I've interpreted some of the recent batch of, of articles and rhetoric, uh, you know, as as more of a strategic messaging campaign, you know, about the fact that British armed forces need more funds, Ukraine needs more funds at a time where those things are under threat. So it's kind of a, a scare tactic to sort of say, if 
these things don't come through now, these may be the long-term consequences. I, I would think that economic recovery plays into that because, of course, you can have, you know, your foreign policy, but if there's no money to pay for it, you know, the UK has done very poorly compared to the US and, and Europe in terms of economic recovery. Hopefully, you're recovering, you know, a little better this year, which obviously then has an impact on the ability to, you know, fund the military properly. But I think it's also important not to take our eyes off the softer threats that are not just uh, military. You know, we've seen the EU signaling over the weekend that they intend to be really forceful against Viktor Orban, for example, if he continues to block the Ukraine funding bill, which, yes, it's good to see Europe taking a, a stronger posture on that. Yes, it's good to see that there may be um, some resolution to the, the, the blocks on assistance. But, you know, important to remember that splintering alliances is also part of Putin's plan and undermining European unity. And I think the other thing I'd quickly mentioned as another strategic threat, which doesn't involve anybody fighting, but is is, is very important to take an active um, approach to is, you know, there's a lot of elections across Europe this year, particularly around Ukraine. So Belarus, Moldova, Romania, and also the European parliamentary elections as well, which not only have an impact on, on the future of this war in, in Ukraine and, and the military um, uh, posture of Europe, but also an opportunity for Russia to destabilise because we have seen the news elections um, in that way as well. So, you know, minded that it's not just about the military, but that is certainly an important part of it. Oz, you've been bringing us up to date recently about Ukraine. We saw how quickly the United States got out of Afghanistan when it made its mind up. How worried is the government in Kyiv that it could happen to Ukraine? Obviously, they're not committed there militarily, but in terms of the amount of supplies and the ammunition that's so desperately needed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're slight. I think that's a slightly awkward comparison because the US has nothing really to pull out from here in Ukraine. The bigger issue is, as you highlighted, is aid. Uh, Ukraine has been able to punch well above its weight in this war and fight a defensive war against a much, much stronger foe uh, invading its territory because it's been able to outsource its wartime economy to Europe and the United States of America, who dwarf uh, Russia's uh, capacity economically and industrially. Now, the problem is this is not sustainable for Ukraine unless that support continues. Uh, Far-right uh, political forces are trying to starve Ukraine of support. Um, and I think it's fair to say that many of these uh, forces, particularly the sort of MAGA-style Republicans in America and the Orban-style far-right Euro European leaders, are very much pro-Russia, very much pro-Putin, um, and have an anti-Ukraine uh, political position. So the government in Ukraine is worried. I mean, it's not, it's beyond worry now. We are already in ammunition uh, shortages. Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian civilians are dying every single day that this aid is not uh, turned back on. Um, and beyond just this aid issue, the other issue is ammunition production. Europe has not met the production needs of, of Ukraine so far. And uh, Russia has... Uh, switched its economy to a wartime footing and is buying or, or, or receiving uh, ammunition from North Korea and Iran to keep sustaining its, its war effort. And there's no limit to how much North Korea and Iran are willing to help their, their Russian ally. So I, I really think this is a, a critical matter for Europe and America, not just to remove the political blockages on providing aid, but also improve its ammunition production capacity. Emma, where's the European pillar of NATO in all this? Because, I mean, we've heard uh, Emmanuel Macron talking of Europe being able to defend itself, but uh, we all know about the unease in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, NATO members in the European pillar who think 
if Ukraine were to fall or, or support were to fail, they could be next. So where, where is Europe in it, do you think? Well, I mean, that's that's kind of an excellent question. Um, to be frank, we haven't seen a great deal of evidence of sort of European security autonomy or strategic autonomy in practice. And I think sort of concern calls I've had from European diplomats recently about which way the American election might go in November sort of speaks to that perception. Politico were reporting last week that all of the leaders of the German coalition party were at a meeting talking about uh, their concerns um, about a Trump presidency and the need for the EU to defend itself against Putin without those US security guarantees. So it's something that's top of mind, but I don't think that we've necessarily seen serious preparation for that eventuality as yet. There is uh, one more thing that I would like to add in this, and that's the news that Biden has cut off uh, or paused uh, liquefied natural gas deliveries to Europe. Now, after Russia invaded Ukraine, Europe sort of unhooked itself from receiving uh, Russian gas supplies, uh, and America managed to step into that void. But given the, the argument about climate change and fossil fuels, the Biden administration is looking at closing off those those supplies to Europe. And I think that's a really dangerous thing uh, economically for Europe because, you know, the cost of living crisis, uh, the the price of energy, all of these things are critically affecting uh, European populations and their ability to continue uh, providing Ukraine the support that it needs. What would bring this together? Is there any chance at all of peace talks between Putin and Zelensky? And if so, who could mediate? I mean, the United Nations seems paralyzed in all this. Yes, uh, this is a really interesting topic, and we covered it on a recent episode. The short answer is there are no chance of peace talks between Putin and Zelensky or Moscow and Kyiv anytime soon. Uh, Russia still has completely maximalist aims in Ukraine, and if it's looking for anything, it's looking to freeze the conflict lines solely so it can rebuild its uh, military offensive capabilities, and then it can go again for another round in Ukraine once it's ready. So the Ukrainians are very aware of that. And there is no point in them signing any kind of ceasefire deal with the Russians that they know would only be violated in the years to come. Um, so I don't think anyone should be looking towards any kind of peace deal soon. And as you said, the United Nations is paralyzed because Russia is a member of the permanent member of the Security Council and has a veto over everything. So essentially, the Russians are vetoing any action against themselves in the UN Security Council. And this is not new. America frequently vetoes um, any resolutions against Israel. So this is a problem with the UN Security Council is there's no real accountability for any countries that are aligned with one of the major powers that holds veto power. And there's no other leader in Europe, the Middle East or Africa that can bring these sides together because what the what Russia wants is to destroy Ukrainian statehood and the Ukrainians don't want to be destroyed. So there's no room for negotiation between those two positions as it currently stands. And just a final point on that, Oz, if, the, if part of the question is one about leadership, then presumably even if they don't so say publicly, the leadership in Kyiv is not entirely enthusiastic about a Donald Trump leadership in the United States. I mean, that's a huge, huge worry because Donald Trump is, I mean, I, I don't want to go into uh, too much of my opinions on, on what kind of man Donald Trump is. But I think that there are people that are very nervous here that Donald Trump will offer 
concessions on Ukraine's behalf that he has no right to offer in order to appease his friend Vladimir Putin. Um, now, also, you know, some people on the American right have raised the fact that Donald Trump was the first person to send uh, deliveries of weapons to Ukraine, whereas the Obama administration refused. And that's a very uh, sugar-coated version of events, particularly seeing as Donald Trump was literally impeached uh, for trying to uh, condition that aid on on hoping that Ukraine would try and dig up dirt on his political rival. Um, and quite honestly, given that Donald Trump was impeached over Ukraine, uh, my impression, and certainly the impression of some of my sources in America, is that D Donald Trump really is out for revenge against Ukraine and Zelensky. Um, so I think people are rightly nervous of what a Donald Trump presidency could bring uh, for American foreign policy in this part of the world looking forward. One lesson from the past is that a threat to peace anywhere can rapidly become a threat to peace almost everywhere. The Middle East is obviously a huge focus of international concern from the humanitarian situation in Gaza to the threat to shipping and the difficult to quantify role Iran plays in much of what's going on. Prime Minister Netanyahu strongly rejects the idea that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza and made clear he will accept no two-state solution after the war is over. Maybe even the idea of the war being over is a bit of a stretch anyway, since you could say that with a few pauses, it's been going on one way or another since 1948. Meanwhile, the US and Britain have been bombing the Houthis in Yemen, while the threat to international shipping has tripled shipping costs and significantly cut down traffic through the Suez Canal. Add to that the permanent enigma of Iran. Tehran has a complex relationship with the Houthis and also Hamas and Hezbollah. The attack by Islamist militants which killed U.S. military personnel in Jordan will, President Biden has assured the American people, bring some kind of retribution. Iran, however, denies any direct responsibility. And then Iran has bombed the border areas of Pakistan, while Pakistan has its own anxieties over disputes in those wild borderlands of Balochistan. Emma, this is as complex as it gets, but how interlinked, if at all, are these various conflicts and flashpoints from Gaza to Pakistan, with Iran playing a role in most of them. Yeah, I recently saw a diagram of sort of who's engaged in military action against who in the wider Middle East. And it looks a bit like a bowl of spaghetti at this point. These things are definitely interlinked. And none of this is happening in a vacuum, which I think is important to remember. Um, these things didn't solely begin um, after October of last year. And worryingly, there seems to be this escalatory pathway that many of us fear is dragging us sort of closer and closer toward a broader regional war. So even over the weekend, you know, you mentioned a couple of these new escalations, the death of uh, three American service members and, and the injury of tens more, and then the US drawing up retaliatory strikes. Important to remember that's about the 160th attack on US forces in the region since October. And that's on top of the escalation in the Red Sea, where a tanker was actually um, directly hit over the weekend, despite the strikes against the Houthis from the US, UK and their allies, which were sort of designed to try to degrade the offensive capabilities of the Houthis and seem to have, have failed to do so. So there's multiple frozen conflicts in the region. So in Syria and Yemen, post-conflict or politically fragile states. And a lot of those are internationalized conflicts. And so they provide a toxic combination of kind of local militia, but who also have international backers and alliances. Um, and then overlaid on top of that is, is the response, of course, to the Israel-Gaza war, which has been like 
petroleum on a on a region that was really primed to blow already. So a lot of what we're seeing, both in terms of this aggression and in retaliation as well, is taking the form of kind of addressing symptoms and not causes. It appears to be one-offs or unrelated things, so the Red Sea or this attack on, on US forces, when actually there's some real core themes across the region, you know, frozen conflicts and so forth, and several actors who run through all of it, namely Iran and also Israel and the US. So you have the US and Iran now kind of in a in an escalation pathway, but they're both hedging because the US and, and Iran ultimately don't want to be in an all-out war with each other. But the question is whether and how, with all of these different theatres and this tit-for-tat escalation that's going on, whether they can both or either step back from the current pathway that we seem to be on. I think what's fascinating about that is if you were the UN Secretary General and you had a magic wand to get people together it's almost impossible to decide who you would get to come together. You know, the Israelis and the Palestinians, yes, but would you have a, a United States with Iran? Would you have uh, Iraq and Syria and Jordan, clearly, and Egypt now that the Suez Canal, uh, the money that they get from that is is going down? The idea of an international peace conference seems completely far-fetched. So it's very difficult to see what the next diplomatic moves are, whatever happens on the ground in Gaza. Yeah, you know, on the positive side, and you know, and it feels perverse to talk about a positive side about anything at the moment, but there is more discussion of a two-state solution than we've seen um, in, in many years, and there's a lot of energy going into attempts to find a solution to the conflict in, in Israel and Gaza. But I think that you are going to see both sides engaging in those discussions with just a huge amount of additional trauma and intransigence. Um, and certainly most people trying to broker peace would see both Hamas and Netanyahu as, as non-starters in a meaningful process. So there are some not insignificant problems just in terms of, you know, who is at the table and who the core um, actors are, you know, and whether they are ready for any kind of uh, meaningful negotiation in that conflict alone. But what I haven't seen or heard is a great deal of discussion or motivation to resolve these other conflicts in the region despite what I would see as a, a really clear lesson on the limits of conflict containment and management. So we're seeing this addressing symptoms and not causes. We're seeing strikes against the Houthis, but the whole discourse is removed from any discussion of the war in Yemen um, as a whole. We're seeing discussion about shifts of US force deployment in, in terms of numbers and location in Iraq and, and by extension Syria, without any discussion about the fact that there is a war in Syria, You know, there is continued fragility in Iraq, so we really seem to be focusing on those of those symptoms and not root causes. There's a feeling to me a little bit of the Afghanistan 21-year wars kind of problem playing out once again. But you do sort of increasingly see, for example, the, the Biden administration privately, I think, um, realizing that trying to negotiate a ceasefire um, of, of some description in Gaza is an important part of lowering the stakes in the region. They've had, you know, the the CIA director out in the region trying to to do just that. And if you look at the number of attacks on US forces um, in the region during the last ceasefire, there were almost none. So there is, you know, a sort of argument of making sure to further those negotiations as a way to bring the temperature down, not just in Israel and Gaza, but all across the region as well. Emma, I just wondered, we all we all listened to the South Africa's genocide claim against Israel and the outrage from Prime Minister Netanyahu and so on. And I wondered, whatever one thinks of the claim itself, the merits of the claim and what happened at the international court, whether that just confirms to Benjamin Netanyahu that uh, the war should go on because that's what keeps him in power and keeps him from having to face all kinds of things domestically in Israel and also with the international uh, court in in The Hague. Well, I think, you know, Netanyahu has 
domestic problems as well. I think he's sort of uninterested in in a lot of the external input. The US have chosen a path where they believe they can play sort of critical friend to him um, in their private engagements, but we're seeing him sort of really increasingly um, splitting from them in his public rhetoric, certainly over the last few weeks. You know, and he's against a two-state solution, you know, continuing with antagonistic policies that are unrelated to Gaza, so in the West Bank as well. And so I think it's it's broadly understood that he is, you know, a, a spoiler to any kind of sustainable peace in the same way that Hamas are, uh, you know, uninterested in solutions that pose an existential threat to their own power and control. You know, so we've seen reporting about uh, solutions that would involve the leaders of Hamas leaving Gaza um, and those seem to be the ones that they are also rejecting. So I think you have two actors um, who are not as interested beyond their own um, survival and power in a way that is potentially unhelpful for finding a resolution. Oh, so I just wonder what your thoughts were on this, because it, it did seem even just a, a year ago as if uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel were coming closer together. There was the prospect, at least, of some kind of rapprochement between the, the biggest Arab powers and Israel. But that's all, all blown away. It's very difficult to see what positive we can take out of it. Well, I mean, I think I would personally ha- uh... I would not agree with that assessment, uh, not because I don't agree with the series of events that you've listed. It's just that uh, from my interpretation of the Abraham Accords and the decision to try and include Saudi Arabia in that by the Biden administration, um, look, uh, Netanyahu shaking hands with a dictator in, in the UAE or a dictator in Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or wherever realistically makes no difference to the view on the Arab street of Israel. That's the first thing. So um, Saudi Arabia and Israel signing an agreement together is good really for only one party, and that's the Israelis, because the Israelis don't want to, well, successive Israeli governments, and it's important to point out that while, yes, Netanyahu very much is uh, an active bloc, Netanyahu is, is, is a symptom. He's not the cause. So an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel, while Israel doesn't have to make any concessions to the Palestinians in regards to a state, is not one that that I think anyone should have any interest in. I don't think it's going to advance any kind of peace. Um, And also, you look, Saudi Arabia is a a dictatorship. Um, They hold no love for the Muslim Brotherhood either. And Hamas are are from that uh, movement. So I think the idea that uh, the Gulf states who are quite hostile to the Muslim Brotherhood uh, agreeing with Israel on anything, I don't think this is that surprising given it's the way the uh, temperature has been going uh, over the last few years. I would agree with much of what Emma said uh, that, that uh, you know, Likud uh, and uh, Hamas are both barriers to peace and w- with those forces still leading everything, uh, there's no current chance for any kind of... Uh, diplomatic solution on the horizon. One of the the bigger problems uh, that I have trying to understand this all, and this is the same thing that I said in October when the war began, uh, I very much did not see a way for Israel to militarily defeat Hamas in any meaningful sense. Um, And I really think that, as you raised earlier, a diplomatic solution which sees the establishment of a Palestinian state, which sees the Palestinians enfranchised, given their human rights, uh, given the freedom to move, given passports, statehood. These kinds of things would really, really fundamentally damage 
Hamas's uh, role in the conflict. But for as long as there's no solution to any of these things, we have to understand that this is the Palestinians' right. It's not it's not a, a gift that Israel should be giving them for, for, for good behavior. They have been denied their rights for over 75 years, uh, and this situation is going to continue. There's not going to be any peace until the Palestinians have some form of statehood and civil rights. And I really think the world needs to be moving towards that. Now, from what I understand about the US administration's position on the Saudi Arabia issue in particular, they have been trying to condition this signature, this agreement on there being concessions made to Palestinians towards a state. But you, you've heard Netanyahu say what he thinks about this many times over. And this isn't new. This isn't people shouldn't be shocked like i can't believe he said this in 2024 this has been going on not just for years but for decades this has been Likud and netanyahu's position for decades not just to block any kind of palestinian state and any kind of peaceful resolution but also to keep growing settlements so that over time many decades down the line any idea of there being contiguous Palestinian state established will be so far removed from the reality on the ground that there is no point in having diplomacy over it because there is no state left for the Palestinians to have. This is a conscious policy decision. Uh, so I really think we need a, a change of mentality in, in Western liberal states uh, about our relationship with this Israeli government. Palestinian civil rights really are the key to so much of this. Now let's turn to Iran. And one of the difficulties here is trying to figure out what the Tehran regime actually wants. Oz, what are your views on this? The Iranian government has its own strategy and plan, and that's to drive both the Americans and the Israelis out of the region entirely. While yes, having a, a Palestinian a resolution to the Palestinian conflict would certainly put some uh, water over those flames, I don't think it would extinguish that fire at all. I don't think that Iran's ambitions really have anything to do with that. As you've seen, uh, the mass murder they've committed in, in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, and I think that there needs to be a very conscious acceptance from uh, Western governments that Iran considers itself at war with not just America and Israel, but the very concept of America and Israel. And its intention is to drive any democratic or, or, or pro-Western forces completely out of the Middle East in its entirety. And I think that that really has to be a, a conscious security concern uh, of the Western governments. Emma, I just wondered on, on that, uh, whether, you know, if you're the American government, if you're Joe Biden and you're looking at this thinking, well, that didn't work out very well for Bill Clinton bringing them together. Um, Iraq is certainly far from completely at peace. Syria is also a mess. You might think that Joe Biden, whatever he's thinking now, might wish to steer clear of the whole region, despite America's supposed leadership on this issue. Well, I, I certainly think the US were trying to steer clear of the region um, before October. I mean, what we saw was a um, Middle East policy that was much more about um de-escalation and security. Um, it was about, you know, securing supply chains. It was about trying to reduce um, U.S. interest and involvement in the region um, as much as possible. There was sort of this idea that you could kind of leave Yemen to the Saudis um, and the Iranians to have a conversation about that the Arab states could take a lead in Syria, certainly after the earthquake a year ago, and, you know, that the Abraham Accords was a, a good solution to, you know, the issues of, of normalization. 
um, and so on. And they were very keen, of course, um, to pivot to China. You know, that was it was very clearly stated that that was uh, what they were trying to do. I think they've been brought back unwillingly, but I don't think that it's a, a position that this administration is particularly enthusiastic about or or comfortable with. Um, but I think they don't have a lot of uh, choice in the matter, and so that's why you are seeing them taking a very active role in trying to uh, address the current situation. Finally, we'll close by asking our panel to point to some less reported issues which may emerge in coming weeks and months or that we should be paying a little more attention to right now. I'm going to start with oil prices because I was talking to uh, an American expert on how you manipulate elections. And I was hoping that to hear a lot about uh, artificial intelligence and fake news and so on. And I did hear quite a lot about that. But the bit that really took me back was oil prices. Uh, He said that if you want to make Americans feel bad about their current administration, put oil prices up. If you want to make them feel good about their current administration, oil prices will come down. And some of the big oil, oil and gas producers in the world include, of course, uh, people in the Middle East and Russia. And you can manipulate the oil prices, of course, by producing more or producing less. And he said that was one to watch. I don't know if he's right, but it's certainly one I'll be keeping an eye on. Oz, what about you? Yes, I'll be brief here. Um, The situation in Myanmar, uh, if people aren't aware, the military junta seized power uh, in around February 2021. Now, over the last three years, anti-government rebels, a wide-ranging coalition of anti-government rebels, ethnic militias, uh, and so on, have been gaining huge amounts of ground uh, against the junta. Now, a few years ago, mass-murdering dictatorships always had an out. All they had to do is call the Russian government, get Wagner in on the ground, and pay them to suppress dissent. Uh, Myanmar doesn't seem to have an ally that it can call on militarily at the moment. The Chinese definitely some don't seem to be uh, trying to um, support that junta. Uh, so therefore, they've started to lose huge, huge swathes of territory to anti-government rebels. And, and it seems like they're picking up momentum with more and more reports of, of large uh, battalions surrendering to the rebels. So this is definitely very much one to watch. And the military hunter there is in real, real trouble. And the, the, there's a, a risk there for them of a total regime collapse, which is very good news for the anti-government rebels. Now, we don't really know uh, what kind of future uh, Myanmar can look forward to under uh, this wide-ranging coalition of, of militias and rebels with differing uh, political views and interests. But they're coming together under the idea, the belief, uh, that they shouldn't be ruled over by a violent military dictatorship. So uh, is this the year that the Myanmar regime finally collapses? Who knows? We'll see. Oz, thank you. Emma, how about you? What should we be looking out for in 2024 that perhaps we're not paying enough attention to? I'm obviously also keeping an eye on Myanmar and, and Sudan along with it, you know, underreported conflicts that are, you know, still hugely significant. But I think the big story um, of the year is going to be around AI and its impact on real world events um, and the ability or not of the various states and global governance sort of instruments to regulate it. 
by all accounts, this was the thing everyone was talking about at Davos this year. You know, we've seen a couple of examples in the last two weeks with deep fake robocalls in the New Hampshire primaries with Taylor Swift, you know, and some deep fake porn, which, you know, isn't so much about Taylor Swift, but about the, the increasing price of, of public life that these kind of tools create and sort of the impact that those might have on elections, for example. My gut says that what we're going to see is something a bit like 2016 and 2017, where we're not really capable of quite grappling with the consequences of some of this until after those consequences come home to roost, like we saw with the sort of disinformation and, and uh, you know, election interference in 2016. You know, we're going to have these issues of sort of competitive advantage of different countries developing AI products, um, copyright issues, um, because of course AI doesn't function without you know the inputs of the same industries that it's going to decimate, which obviously has impact, huge impact potential on, on jobs and economies. And then of course these nascent attempts to regulate AI at a time where states are not getting along particularly well on a whole range of issues. You know this is the year that they will be really trying to get together to you know, capture the benefits of AI while mitigating the harms and whether or not they're able to do that before, you know, to get out ahead of, of some of this technology is going to be uh, really important. Thank you. I, I don't know about you, but never mind deep fakes. I have difficulty enough spotting some of the shallow fakes that are around us. But that's it for this edition of This Is Not A Drill. A quick reminder that we're weekly on Wednesdays and earlier if you support us on Patreon. Just search This Is Not A Drill Patreon to find out how. I'm off for a quick trip to the United States to check out how the great superpower may be feeling about the possible return to power of the man sometimes known as the Donald. Thanks for listening and goodbye. This is not a drill. It was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parrott, and social media by Jess Harper. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production.